0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, Will Carr explores the world of Anthony Pohl's A Dance to the Music of Time, with writer and academic Nicholas Burns. A Dance to the Music of Time is a 12-volume roman fleuve following 50 years in the life of the narrator Nick Jenkins from his school days in the 1920s through the Second World War to his later years at the beginning of the 1970s. Blending comic writing with examinations of the social and political mores of the British upper classes, Jenkins remembers the people he shared his life with during key events, not least his nemesis and the recurring villain of the sequence, Kenneth Widmerpool, who comes to dominate both Jenkins's memories and the novel sequence as a whole. Anthony Pohl was born in Westminster, London, in 1905. He was educated at Eton, where he became friends with the future novelist Henry Green, and at Balliol College, Oxford, where he became a member of the Hypocrites Club, a student club which counted Evelyn Waugh among its members. After Oxford, Waugh introduced Paul to the Bohemian scene in London, where he met his close friend, the composer Constant Lambert. During the war, he worked for the intelligence services and was decorated for his actions on the European front. After the war, he became a full-time writer, as well as the 12 volumes of A Dance to the Music of Time, he wrote seven further novels, four volumes of memoir, several plays and various works of non-fiction. He died in 2000, aged 94. Nicholas Burns is on the faculty of New York University, where he teaches contemporary world literatures in English. His most recent book is The Cambridge Companion to the Australian Novel, which he co-edited with Lewis Clee. He's the author of many other books and articles on the subject of literary criticism, including Australian literature, in which he is one of the world experts. His first book, Understanding Anthony Pohl, appeared in 2004 and was part of the wider discussion of Pohl's work that occurred in his centennial year of 2005. He is a founding member of the Anthony Pohl Society. For all of the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned, head to the description of this episode. Here's Will Carr, who spoke to Nicholas Burns about A Dance to the Music of Time in August 2023. Welcome to this latest episode of 99
1: Novels, and thanks Nicholas for joining us to talk about Anthony Pohl's Dance to the Music of Time, um, which is one of, well, perhaps not one of Burgess's favourites, but one that he does spend some time reviewing in his selection. I wanted to start though not with Anthony Burgess, but with you, really. Um, how did you first discover Anthony Paul's work, and what did you make of it? I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about what your first impressions were of Dance the Music of Time.
2: I first discovered Anthony Paul's work when I was 13 years old. Uh, my mother had his early novel, What's Become of Wearing, which is not part of the dance sequence, and two volumes of the dance sequence, uh, A Soldier's Art and Hearing Secret Harmonies. She had those on her bookshelf. And uh, I became interested in them. It was about the era I was beginning to read adult fiction then. And I became interested enough to start reading dance from the beginning. And the first book, which is about a boy at school, was um, the, the, the boys were a few years older than me, but it was within my age range. But all the other books were about an age I had not yet attained. And so I think for me, it was kind of a a preview of what an adult existence would be and what adults did and what adults thought about and the splendors and miseries of adult life. Uh, a, a friend of mine named John Gould uh, taught the entire series at a New England boarding school and uh, wrote a, uh, compiled a little book of his students' essays for which I wrote the introduction in 2008 or so. And I said in that, that reading the book so early, at when they were in high school, would give the students a kind of, it would be a guide to life for them. And I think it was that for me. I was in America. I did not come from a socially English background. I knew nothing of the world of, these people, but in terms of the substance of life that 's what it served me as. I also thought it was a very funny book, and there are many laugh out loud moments for me when I first read it
1: great well, well we'll maybe come on to talk a little bit about paul 's comedy, but i 'm very interested in what you say about it being a guide to life because you know in many ways um, it 's potentially quite an alienating sort of book in a way it 's talking about a a social milieu a set of people who whose life experiences are not necessarily shared by by very many in england so still less in america i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about that really you did you didn't find it at all off putting you you found it engaging how did it go for you i
2: think english readers feel that off puttingness more because english readers are very aware that places like Eton and Oxford exist. And if they're not part of those systems, they don't feel part of those systems. I really had no awareness of the existence of those places. And so to me, it was just like reading something from another planet. But I I did not feel alienated. And I think the characters in the books... Had families i mean the the narrator had an eccentric uncle, uncle Giles, and I had three eccentric uncles, so I related to to that uh the narrator had friends at school and I had friends at school, etc. Et I think the the substance of life is there, no the milieu is very different. I did not grow up in anything like that milieu, but it did translate. I do believe it it translated for me. I understand it doesn't translate for every reader, including for Burgess, but it translated for me.
1: Um, well, maybe you could tell us uh, a bit about the sequence itself. Then you know, how, how would you describe *Dance the Music of Time* in total uh, to somebody who hasn't read it? And how would you, you know, how would you go about reading it? It sounds like you started at the beginning and read it to the end, but it could be quite daunting for somebody new to Paul's work.
2: It can. A Dance to the Music of Time is a 12-book sequence. He began it, Anthony Paul began it in 1951 with a question of upbringing. I don't think he intended the sequence to be 12 at first. I think he probably thought it would be nine or 10. And it is only at the point of the book that Burgess reviews in 1962 of the sixth book in the sequence, The Kindly Ones, that it became a 12 book sequence, but it was always gonna be a long sequence. And the point of the sequence is to carry the characters through school, university, adulthood, World War II, and the huge changes in British society that World War II precipitates, and the period after the war. I'm not sure Paul intended to bring it much past the war at first, but he lived long enough and had enough material to continue after the war. And indeed, the last book, which was published in 1975, Hearing Secret Harmonies, the last book of the sequence, takes the action up to 1971. So in total... Uh, there's one flashback in the sixth book to 1914, but the main action starts in 1921. It ends in 1971. So it's 50 years of British life from just after World War One to the early 1970s. And it has hundreds of characters. So many characters. Hilary Sperling uh, in 1977, compiled a guide to the sequence, and even she leaves some characters out. There are just too many characters to be put in. And a lot of the fun of the book is every installment, new characters are introduced because every installment is a new world, a new particular part of life. But then the characters from the previous books recur and are reintroduced and you kind of meet the old friends that you had met before. Each book is about 250 pages. So you can read the books at a short sitting. One person I know uh, first started reading in the late 1960s when there were nine books or so and read a book a day and then caught up with the sequence. I can't see doing it that quickly. I kind of wanted to linger over the books more, but it is certainly possible. And I do think that you don't have to start with the first book. I think one should be able to read one book, even if it's comparatively late in the sequence, and get the idea and enjoy it. And the reluctance of teachers or professors to assign the book, which I understand and which is a big issue in the sequence's reception, is because teachers often feel, well, if you have to read the sequence, you have to read all 12 books. Whereas I think one can assign the sixth novel, the seventh novel, the eighth novel on their own in the awareness that there's a larger sequence, but you can do it on their own. People are reluctant to do that because they feel you have to read the whole thing. Something that I always tell people when they tell me they are beginning to read the sequence and A lot of people know I have written on Paul. I did a book on Paul, Understanding Antony Pohl in 2004. I'm very active in the Antony Pohl Society. People kind of associate me with the sequence and they ask my advice. And I tell them, if you begin at the beginning, you have to give the sequence two to three books. And you have to see the characters carried into London. And a lot of what you mentioned before, the off-putting quality of these snobby, exclusive schools, that's mostly in the first book. And in the second and third book, the character gets out of those schools and into London, where he meets people who are not from those schools and who are from a different background and who are more bohemian and who are not necessarily upper crust. And it's all the unpredictability and complexity of life in a great modern city in the second and third books. And you have London in the 20s and 30s presented in all its magnificence and misery. And I always tell readers, stay through maybe to the beginning of the third book of The Acceptance World. Go 40 pages into that. If by then it's not for you, it's probably just not for you. It probably won't convert you after that, but I would urge them just to hang in there and let the work wreak its effect. It's somewhat similar to advice I would give to Joyce's uh, Ulysses, to readers of Joyce's Ulysses. Stay in there until Leopold Bloom comes, until you're done with the Stephen Dedalus alone part. Stay until you meet Leah, because that's the heart of the book. And similarly, the London life of dance the music of time is the
1: heart of well that's great. That sounds like a really um a really useful strategy to anyone wanting to attempt it. I would say I, I read Dance the Music of Time during the pandemic, that was one of one of my projects and uh, yeah and I, and I had a good time and it I sort of was able to dip in and out of it you know was able to put it down and pick it up um, but the characters certainly you develop a relationship with them over over time and it gradually unfolds, so it's important to give that some space to happen i think Yes, that's very um, true. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about. Uh, Anthony Pohl himself, though. Um, One of the things people say about The Music of Time is that it has a lot of autobiographical elements, um, but it is nonetheless fiction. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about how Pohl does use elements of his own life and experiences in in the novels.
2: The sequence is very close to what would today be called autofiction, which is a very popular form today. I think the only difference between Dance to the Music of Time and Autofiction is the narrator's name is changed. It's not Anthony Pohl, it's Nicholas Jenkins, and none of the books that Anthony Pohl, in fact, wrote are ascribed to Nicholas Jenkins. The one book Nicholas Jenkins is said to write, a book on Robert Burton, the author of The Anatomy of Melancholy. Uh, Anthony Pohl never wrote such a book. Uh, so it is a different name. But the experiences of the narrator are largely the experiences of Anthony Pole. Anthony Pole was the son of an army officer. His father was an army officer. His mother was the descendant of Lincolnshire landed gentry. His father was of distant Welsh ancestry, and the narrator has the ancestry. Uh, The narrator goes to Eton and Balliol College, Oxford, as Anthony Pohl did. The narrator goes to live in London, uh, marries a woman who is the daughter of an earl who's of an aristocratic background and serves in the army in World War II, uh, ending up in military intelligence, as Anthony Pohl also did. Uh, Later, the narrator moves out to the country as Anthony Pohl also did, and becomes a senior man of letters, as Anthony Pohl also did. So the experiences of the narrator and the milieu and the kinds of people the narrator meets are largely those of Anthony Pohl. Very importantly, though, the other characters are not like that. And even though it's well known that Friends or enemies of Poles inspired the characters in the work to some degree. It is rare that the characters will just be real people disguised in books. It's rare that it will be what the French call a roman axé, a key novel, where you read the novel to see the author presenting real characters. Often, he's mixed two or three people he knew, and based his characters on them. The one exception, I think, would be the narrator's best friend in the sequence, Hugh Morland, the composer Hugh Morland. That character is based fairly concretely on Constant Lambert, the modernist composer who was a good friend of Anthony Pohl in real life. And I think you could say
1: right.
2: Hugh Moreland is more or less Constant Lambert, perhaps, a, I think, a nicer version than uh, Constant Lambert was in real life. But there's an original there. With a lot of the other characters, they aren't originals. You can't reduce them to originals. And least of all with Wimber the the villain... Of the sequence, but somebody you kind of love to hate, somebody who is the main character in the sequence in many ways. The wartime aspects of Wimberpool were based on somebody Paul Surf with named Dennis Capel Dunn, but only Wimberpool in the ninth book. And all the earlier stuff of Wimberpool is, is something completely invented. So there is a lot of invention in the book, along with a lot of reality. But basically, the life of the narrator is the life of Entity Paul.
1: I see it. And and did Paul um Paul must have had a sort of relationship with that. Uh, you know, did, I imagine people asked him, Oh, who who's this character? Who have you based that on? What's this scene from? All that kind of thing. What did what kind of thing did he have to say about people's attempts to relate it to life in that way?
2: Quite oddly. And I think he found this odd, and I found this odd. But uh his very aristocratic uh, brother-in-law, the seventh Earl of Longford, Frank Pakenham, uh, always thought he was Whitmerpool and thought that Whitmerpool was based on him, maybe because Whittenberpool at one point has left-wing politics and uh, the Earl of Longford also had left-wing politics. But Whittenberpool, who is presented as this striving, the son of a man who sold liquid manure, this uh, very much a new man, is not at all this aristocratic Earl. But nonetheless, that person looked at that character and thought that is me. And I think a lot of people, friends of his, assumed that it was them, and it really wasn't. And uh, I think he had a lot of issues with that. He took it in good part, but he was always having to explain to people, look, this is fiction. And I am trying to create fictional characters who will serve the needs of fiction, as you said, intriguing the reader, making the reader want to meet them again. And probably I have to make a lot of these people more interesting for good or for ill than people in real life actually are and play up their comic or grotesque aspects. So I think he found that moderately frustrating, but he was prepared to take it philosophically as kind of mistakes that readers make.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Anthony Burgess and what he had to say about about Paul's work. Um, as you mentioned, he reviewed the sixth novel of the sequence, *The Kindly Ones*. Uh, it was in 1962 for the Yorkshire Post. And Burgess, in that review, I think, mistook that sixth novel for the completion of the sequence and writes about it with a with a bit of relief, as as much as anything. It's not a completely uh, favourable review, and indeed, he compares Paul somewhat unfavorably to Proust. Um, that's not a particularly original comparison, but I wondered if you thought that was at all useful way of thinking about Dance of the Music of the Time, or more generally, you know, what kinds of literary traditions might Paul be writing in?
2: In the ninth book, the narrator goes to uh, the, the place uh, where, uh, which was fictionalized by Proust in Swan's Way, and pretty much names Proust as a precursor. And certainly anybody who's read up to book nine, The Military Philosophers, knows that Proust is important to the book. And Proust similarly wrote a long autobiographical sequence uh, about a reflective narrator going back to boyhood who has troubles in love and artistic aspirations and is affected by a great war. And the trajectory of Dance to the Music of Time is similar. I would say, first of all, Proust is autofiction in that the name Marcel is used in the book, whereas Dance is not because he uses the name Nicholas Jenkins. Secondly, of course, Proust is much more philosophical. A uh, La Recherche du Temps perdu is a philosophical work and can be seen almost in a continental philosophical tradition, whereas Dance to the Music of Time, they're philosophical moments, but it's much more a comic, dramatic novel. And I think to expect it to have the intellectual or philosophical depth of Proust would be to miscast it. Paul himself uh in his 1989 uh, journal entry where he rereads the sequence 14 years after completing it says it's kind of half Proust and half like John Galsworthy the author of the Foresight Saga which is a English sequence that is a form of social history set in a bourgeois milieu and it has one foot in the English social reality and another foot in that Proustian memory. And, you know, that's, I think, a a good way to think about it. A a Proust is there, but don't expect it to be just like Proust. And the Englishness of it all does play a role. And and there is, um, I think David Copperfield is a book very important to that dance to the music of time and david copperfield in uh, dickens in that book is doing something similar than paul is they're english roots they're also american uh aspects and as an american reader i'm very conscious of those i think the great gatsby was very influential on the narrator on the narrative perspective and uh hemingway influences the dialogue a bit Anthony Burgess, earlier, before he wrote 99 novels, in his book The Novel Now, which came out late 60s, early 70s, he talked about the dialogue in the novel being strangely formalized. And I understand what he's saying there. It is very formalized, and I think it's formalized in the way Hemingway's dialogue is similarly strangely formalized. So there is that influence, and I I think uh, the Proustian influence is counterpoised to those other influences. He also read a lot of uh, memoir and prose history and some of those nonfiction autobiography. Some of those nonfiction genres have an effect on the book, I think, and on the way the book is, is kind of like social history. With regard to Burgess's thinking, The Kindly Ones was the end of the sequence. I could understand that because it's the onset of World War II, and you know the world is going to change. I think what it was was end of Act One, and Act Two began, six more books began with the beginning of World War II, and Kindly Ones is that kind of halfway point marker. And it's a very interesting book because, as I mentioned before, it has that flashback to when the narrator is eight years old and you see this rather austere and almost intimidating narrator as a young boy. And he, I think he becomes much more accessible. But uh, that he Burgess was right to see it as a milestone. It just wasn't the end. It was the halfway point.
1: Well, that's great. There, there are a few kind of touch points there to think about. Um, and Burgess picks up on some of those as well, I think. He, he describes the sequence as what he calls perhaps the finest long comic novel that England has produced this century. I mean, I don't know how pray, much praise he's giving there, but but he does um, he does want to put it in a kind of context, I suppose. I wondered if we could pick out the comic from that. Uh, you mentioned about Paul's uh, comedy before, the the laughing out loud at it. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about the nature of that comedy. You've already touched on Dickens. Perhaps there are other things we can think about too.
2: All. Oh was a member of a generation which produced a lot of novelists uh, who were contemporaries of his and often classmates of his, and uh, George Orwell and Henry Green, uh, both of whom you've talked about on this podcast before, and Graham Greene. And the writer who Paul is most compared with is Evelyn Waugh. Uh, who was slightly older contemporary of his at Oxford. And Evelyn Waugh's humor is, he's a very funny writer, is very strident, it's very satiric, it's very animated. Paul's humor, I would say, is much drier, it's much more serene, it's much more tacit. And so if you're comparing Paul to Waugh, he's not going to provide the laughs per minute that particularly the early Waugh of Decline and Fall or Vile Bodies gives. But if you let it accumulate, as we've discussed, it comes to seem very, very funny indeed. When Pool recurs, when he comes back, and the various unexpected guises where Widmerpool turns up again, where we least expect him. That is always very funny. And after a point, the reader knows that's coming and is waiting for Widmerpool to turn up and is waiting for that most unlikely moment to happen. And it becomes very, very funny. There are some moments of very broad comedy in the sequence. In the second book, Widmerpool is courting this uh, aristocratic young lady And she pours sugar over him semi-intentionally. And he's humiliated. It's the middle of this very uh, uh, prestigious debutante party. And it's a moment of great laugh-out-loud humor. And that's very broad humor. There's other humor, which is very literary. Uh, People who have literary tastes that are more middle-brow than they think they are in the first book the boys meet their housemaster at at Eton, what is just called school in in the book, but everybody knows it's Eton. And he's reading poetry and he kind of knows it's second rate poetry, late Victorian poetry, but he doesn't quite know just how second rate it is. And that gap between what he thinks it is and what it actually is, is very, very funny if you are clued in as a literary reader. It's very different than just that very broad humor of, It's a guy getting sugar poured over him at at a party. It's a very different kind of humor. But if you're attuned to that kind of frequency, it can be very funny.
1: Got it. Thank you. Yes. Well, yeah, there are certainly, um, yeah, certainly different kinds of humor in the novel. One of my experiences reading it was that I'd I'd read a sequence, perhaps where he, the one that I remember particularly, is where he encounters Gypsy Jones, uh, Nicholas Jenkins. Yes well, I think, loses his virginity to Jesse Jones. Correct. But the, the sequence is it's so um, hedged around with uh, kind of elaborate phrasing and it's, it becomes extremely unclear what's happening and you get to the end of it. And it's it's just sort of you end up as baffled as Nick Jenkins perhaps himself was by the experience. And I, I find that very funny uh, to read.
2: There's something very funny, a kind of writer to that, Uh, is that, yes, Nick Jenkins does lose his virginity uh, to Gypsy Jones, and it's amusing because before and after that, he is repulsed by her and finds her completely uninteresting. But that moment in the back of Mr. Deacon's shop, he finds this somehow magnetic attraction. But the first book written by an American was by a man named Robert Morris, Bob Morris, who's still in his 90s living in the state of Maine now, but still alive. And Bob Morris, quite understandably, missed that and thought he was on the verge of losing his virginity with Gypsy and then didn't. And later critics corrected Morris on that. But somebody who went to the trouble to write a book on Anthony Paul actually missed that, which illustrates just how hard it is to get and how closely you have to read to get that. And there are times where, yes, you have to pay quite close attention. There are other times where the humor is as broad as something in Dickens or Raw, and he, he knows how to make that contrast. He knows when to play up the humor and then downplay it. I certainly think One of the things when readers ask me what to expect, you have to expect that it is going to be a funny book. The humor is going to have to be a part of its appeal. And if you read through all 12 of those books and don't laugh once, even if you're admiring, you probably are missing something. He means you to laugh and he means the effect he's writing to be at least partially comic. There are, of course, many tragic moments. There are very many sad moments. There's a a melancholy to the sequence as well. But if the comedy doesn't hit you, you probably are missing something.
1: I suppose in part, this is part of the ambition to reflect life in all its ups and downs, you know, all of, all of his experience. And, um, yes. And over the course of the sequence, there's, uh, there's plenty of opportunities to have, have all kinds of different emotional reactions, I suppose. Um, let's, uh, you mentioned already, Evelyn, what Burgess again makes the comparison, um, in relation to Paul's treatment of uh, class, in that he says Paul can't take the lower classes seriously. But he does say that Paul's characters are all drawn from the same, same register, and nonetheless deserve places in the eternal fictional pantheon. I mean, I suppose you can think of Dickens or other writers having created characters with that kind of quality. Perhaps Burgess is thinking of Paul who you've mentioned already. I just wondered if you could speak a bit more about Paul's characters, how they're formed, how they stay with you, you know, what kind of function they serve.
2: I think the characters are meant to be memorable they're meant to be as you say people who you think you know and when you re-encounter them as you read in the sequence you kind of think oh this is somebody I like this is somebody i like to meet like Moreland and oh no here's Whidmerpool again just where I didn't want to see him and so there is a sense where the characters even though they are in reality, just words on a page, they're fictional creations. They don't really exist. The characters do come to live. And certainly, Wimmerpool, if you read the books, you're always seeing people either in your own life or in public life. People always like to compare whatever politician they don't like to uh, Wimmerpool. You do have that sense of the character as kind of a living example that you can compare other people to. And there are, as I said, there are hundreds of characters in the books, and even the minor characters are kind of types that you could say, well, this is my counterpart in my life to this person like Mr. Deacon, who's this painter, who's really a friend of his parents, but one they kind of hold at arm's length because he's Bohemian and also tacitly because he's gay and he's in a different world than them, but they still know them. And then the character uh, narrator, Nick Jenkins, comes to know Mr. Deacon as an adult. And you could say, well, I know somebody who's kind of like my Mr. Deacon, who's a friend of my parents, who I later became friends with. And a lot of people have that. And he clothes the characters in these attributes that you could say, this is my version of this. And I think that's why a lot of people uh, relate to the characters. It is a book in which character matters and probably character matters more than plot and that There are a lot of the sequence, nothing dramatic really happens, but you get to know these people and their quirks and their strengths and weaknesses. And you also, sometimes their characters, the narrator and the reader think more of as the sequence goes on. And sometimes their characters, people think less of that our judgment of them changes or our judgment of who they really are changes. And I think that's something very true to life. With regard to to not taking the lower classes seriously, I do think that is an issue for the book. The book takes place, the book is set in an upper and upper middle class milieu. And the only time we meet characters from outside that class is in the war, particularly in the seventh book, the Valley of Bones, the narrator uh, decides to enlist in this uh, regiment, which is based in Wales because of, I think, romantic ideas about his Welsh ancestry. And he meets a lot of these. The commanding officers are at work in banks and the enlisted men uh, are, are probably lower class in background. And you do meet people from different classes but the narrator has difficulty relating to them. And it isn't the same as uh, relating to his London literary friends. And when he's back in London, a couple of books later with his literary friends, he's kind of breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, And so the book doesn't make an attempt to cover all social class in England. And I think we have to grant that And I understand readers who might feel excluded or might feel that the book is narrow. I, I'm not sure, given the premise of the book, he could have done it any other way. If you've read Tolstoy's War and Peace, uh, late in the book, Pierre, who's aristocratic, meets this peasant named Karatea, who kind of shows him the wisdom of, of life. It would be hard to pull that off to have Nicholas Jenkins learn the wisdom of life from some uh, lower class enlisted man in in World War II. It would be hard to pull that off in England in the 20th century in the fiction of Anthony Pole. It's not the same as Tolstoy in the 19th century in in Russia. So I don't quite see how, given the premises, he it would have been any different. But I under I certainly understand what Burgess is saying, and there are a lot of readers who who feel that way. And British people tend to feel that way more than Americans because they recognize the class structures. For Americans, it's it's kind of all such a different world that we probably aren't as sensitive to that. And that's why American reviewers tended to bring up the subject of class less than British reviewers did.
1: Well, th- this preoccupation uh, was one of Burgess's very much so. I think you know it was something that uh, that he wrote about himself and you know one of the lenses through which he uh, through which he read books. And um, I, I mean, I suppose one of the things to say about it is that Paul probably felt he had to be true to his characters, right? You know, it would, wouldn't make sense for Nicholas Jenkins to have you know relationships with so many different kinds of people when he himself was from a very specific uh, milieu, from a very specific background.
2: Yeah. That's probably what he would say.
1: I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the legacy of Dance the Music of Time. I mean, it's it's not it's been out of print. It's been on uh, television and so on. Um, but I wondered what you felt the current readership of Paul was like, and indeed whether there are any writers working today who you felt their work was influenced by Paul.
2: I think it's still, the sequence is still around. It's certainly still in print. It has a lot of readers. I think it's gained readers as you yourself said, the people read long books during the pandemic. And there are people who wrote me during the pandemic who were reading it. I got an email early on that period where we just weren't leaving our houses at all. I got an email from uh, a recently graduated student uh, from the University of Iowa and who was a student with uh, a surname that indicated his ancestry was from south, the southern part of India. And uh, he said he had just discovered the sequence and he didn't know anybody who read it and he wanted to talk about it. And we had a, a nice, during the period when uh, nobody had anything else to do, we had a nice email exchange about that. And I do think it has gained readers during the pandemic. but. It isn't there, it is not. There are a set of books which every literate person feels they have to know. I'm not sure the sequence has ever been in that set. Those who know it, know it. I think it's very important to practicing writers because of the way it handles length and the way it handles the idea of a series. I wonder, I, I'm an admirer of Burgess's Malaya Trilogy, which came out after Dance started appearing. I wondered if he had read Dance by then and whether it influenced the way he he handled just the idea of a, a series novel in the Malaya Trilogy. And I think writers who've written sequences, A.N. Wilson's Lampit Papers, for instance, uh, Simon Raven's Alms for Oblivion, uh, very much, uh, both very much influenced by Poe, And more broadly, anybody who writes in a series, so detective fiction, where you take the same detective and put that detective in a series. The late uh, detective writer Bill James, whose real name is, was James Tucker. And as James Tucker, he wrote a book on Anthony Pohl as Bill James, he wrote a series of mystery novels featuring the detectives Harper and Isles. And he makes a lot of references to Poe in his novels. And uh, I think found, even though his social terrain is very different, found the way the same characters are managed over a series of novels found that important. Alan First, the American uh, spy thriller writer who writes... Historical mystery set in World War II. More or less, Uh, he has spoken. He he was a keynote at a a conference in poll that I organized in 2009. Also, writers of fantasy. I think are influenced of science fiction. Fantasy are influenced. Who tend to write in series and of all these characters and all these patterns. I think he's influenced them. You also, I think. I was just talking about this with a colleague this morning. The average literary novel today is longer. That it used to be, and uh, it used to be a literary novel was 250, 300 pages. Now it's fairly routine for a well-regarded literary novel to be 600, 700 pages. And I do think Paul has influenced writers who are doing that sort of novel. Again, in his handling of how to continue characters and situations on a big canvas where there's a lot of change but also keep that consistency. And so I think your average, I don't quite know whether there's any book which actually fits the genre, but your average long high literary social novel today kind of reflects that Powellian influence. And sometimes it's acknowledged uh, Claire Massoud, uh in 2006, I believe, Wrote The Emperor's Children, published The Emperor's Children, which is a very interesting book. And she has an epigraph from Paul about personal myths to that. And you can see a Powellian influence in the way she handles her characters there. So I do think there's an influence. When Hilary Sperling's biography came out in 2018, it was very widely... Claire Massoud reviewed it, for instance. It was widely... John Banville reviewed it. John Banville is another writer I think you can see... Poe's influence in a lot and he's a writer coming from a very different social milieu but you see a a big Powellian influence in john banville he reviewed it so i do think the practicing writer knows it uh, a lot of people today and i understand why are put off by they don't want to read yet another book by an elite white male when your entire education has been elite white men. And what what more do I have to learn from an elite white straight upper class Englishman? I think when people get past that, they find a lot that people coming from any subject position can use. But I understand that people have that sense of uh, a barrier. So I hope when people hear a, a non-upper-class American like me speaking about Paul, they'll they'll get past that barrier a bit. But I understand it's there.
1: Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, that's a very eloquent sort of um, well, not even a defense, a, a affirmation, I think, of uh, of Paul's, pl- Paul's place in the uh, in the landscape. I suppose. I don't want to say cast a shadow, because that's kind of negative, but it, it's, it's that uh, his writing and his influence is there, even when not necessarily acknowledged. Though there are, as you say, a number of quite specific examples where people are picking up his, his approach and his style, even today. One of the things we're asking everybody participating in this project is to uh, pick a hundredth novel to add to Burgess's 99 that he picked. I wondered if you'd be prepared to do the same. What would your hundredth novel be? Burgess
2: notes that he picked an Australian book. He picked uh, the Nobel Prize winner by then, Patrick White's Writers in the Chariot, which I think is just the right Australian book to pick. He did not pick a Canadian or New Zealand book. And I am going to pick a New Zealand book, and I am going to pick uh, Janet Frame's 1957 novel, Owls Do Cry. The title comes from The Tempest, I think, Ariel's song in the Tempest. And Janet Frame was a New Zealand writer who lived, I'm going to like 1924 to 2005. I might be getting her dates but somewhat off by a year or two, but lived in, in that era. And she was a writer who was diagnosed with mental illness early in her life and was institutionalized and kind of wrote her way out of that situation. And I like the first novel, Owls Do Cry in particular, because it has a realistic base and somewhat like Dance to the Music of Time, it's doing its own thing, but it also has a realistic base and it's very much about the decline of a family, the breakup of a family. So it's a a solid place to start. And I think one of the biggest changes between that list and now is for Burgess. Fiction in English was well. It's either English or American, and there's some, you know, he had Wilson Harris, and there's some writers from outside those countries. But today, fiction in English would be Indian, Pakistani, Australian, New Zealand, etc. And so, I think picking a New Zealand book in uh, Janet Frame's *Al's Do Cry* helps make that point.
1: Fantastic. Thank you, Nicholas. We'll add that to the list. And thank you so much for taking part in in talking about *Dance to the Music of Time* with me today. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Understanding Anthony Pohl by Nicholas Burns is available now from your favourite place to buy books. You can follow the Anthony Pohl Society at antonypohl.org. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit antonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.